Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. None of us uh, wants to be taken for a fool. My parents used to tell me when I was growing up a phrase that, a saying that's probably you've heard before. If something is too good to be true or seems too good to be true, it probably is. That message, for whatever reason, didn't always take root in my head, even though I heard it many times. I remember one time in college when I found an offer to go hear a pitch and win a free vacation. And so I told Andrea, we're about to get married. This would be great. This would be our honeymoon. We'll, we'll do this for our honeymoon. Be free. This will be awesome. She says, no. See, she listened to the lesson, apparently, that her parents taught her. Andrea is naturally a skeptic when it comes to those kinds of things. Me, I know, I tend to know that it probably is an offer that's too good to be true, and it's probably going to be a trap, but you just never know. You might miss out on the one time when it really is true. How would you ever win the lottery if you didn't ever play? So let's do it, right? So occasionally, you just got to take a chance, hear a sales pitch, and, uh, and go for it. If it were up to me, we would probably own about four timeshares by now. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have some vacation spots open if you're interested. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this morning in our text, the Pharisees and the Sadducees find themselves in a similar spot in that they're thinking Jesus, this preaching from that's coming out of Galilee, these miracles that are happening, this is simply too good to be true. We're going to go check this out. And so we find ourselves in our text this morning in Matthew chapter 16, 1 to 4, where the Pharisees are there on the scene investigating these claims as the cops, if you will, of the group. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that without you helping us to understand and apply, this is merely an academic exercise. And we pray that it would not be that, but that you would give us insight into the text and apply it to our lives that we may be holy and transformed people, having encountered you through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last two years, uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we're now moving into our third year, and we're almost halfway through. So, about six years down the road, and we'll be, we'll be done. All right. Um, now, as we study the Bible, one of the most important things that you can do as you read is to keep your eye on the context and regularly remind yourself of the things that have come before it. 
This is particularly important when you get to narrative, long stretches of narrative, like you'll find here in Matthew or in the Gospels or perhaps even in some Old Testament books like Genesis, Exodus, maybe the book of Jonah and some of the prophets and so on. You have to remember the way the story has developed thus far in order to understand what's going on currently, to to better uh, develop your mind and help you understand what's going on currently. Now, to understand the book of Matthew, we're taking a slow trip through it, sure. One of the downsides of that is that sometimes we can lose track of the context. So I try to remind you every week of the things that are going to be really important and relevant to the passage that we're looking at this morning. So remember... Jesus has introduced to us the kingdom of heaven. We saw that back in chapters 4 to 7. He's coming on the scene and he's introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. And what he tells us in 4 to 7 is a lot of things, but some of which is, is, are things like who belongs in the kingdom of heaven? What kinds of citizens make up the kingdom of heaven? And he identifies them as poor in spirit. They're meek. They're, they're a whole lot of things. They're people that keep their eyes on the kingdom of heaven rather than, uh, and, and God's righteousness rather than on current circumstances and many other things. And then we move into chapters 8 to 10. And you'll remember there in 8 to 10, he does a lot of miracles. He does virtually nothing but miracles. And it shows to us this same person that introduced the kingdom to us actually does have God's permission to have authority over the kingdom and actually bring it into people's lives. And so there's a real-world impact of this kingdom that he's bringing. That it's not just some spiritual or mental exercise that he's talking about, like Gandhi or Buddha or something like that. This is an actual real-world application. It heals the sick. It cures the leper. The lame walk under this, the auspices of this kingdom. And Jesus, as its point man, has the authority to distribute it to people. And then we moved into chapters 11 and 13 to 13, where people are responding to Jesus and his teaching. And some of them are accepting of his teaching. They're embracing it with open arms. And then there's some that are kind of like questioning him and saying, I'm not sure about this. And then there's others that are just rejecting it out of hand. They're just, this is not the Messiah. This absolutely is not the one. But the irony of all of that is that the ones who have been receiving Jesus, the ones who have demonstrated, like Jesus says back in chapter 5, that they are poor in spirit, that they're meek, the ones that are demonstrating that are the ones that are the outcasts of society. Even the Gentiles. In the last passage, we saw the Canaanites. All these people that should be the outside, the cast out of Jewish society, are the ones that are embracing Jesus. But the ones that have rejected him are the ones that have been the religious elites in society. So the ones that have the Bible memorized, that can quote Scripture have been the ones that have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and the poor and the marginalized have been the ones to accept Jesus. The ones that are rejected by Jewish society have been the ones to accept Jesus as the Messiah. This is particularly important for our purposes this morning, as the religious elites in the story, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, come in to lay a trap for Jesus. 
you'll notice that there are mainly two parts to the text. If you take, if you take notes, if you're a note taker, it's really just divided into two sections. One is the trap in verse 1, and then in 2 to 4, the response that Jesus gives to them. So the story opens with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're coming to Jesus. And Matthew actually tells us there in verse 1, read it with me, he says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now immediately, your ears should perk up when you read this because of the group that is testing Jesus. They're particularly important. Matthew tells us here that they are Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, you can think of these two groups kind of like political parties, a little bit like political parties. The Pharisees, an easy way to remember this, I've said this before, but an easy way to remember it, the Pharisees were fair, you see, because they believed that God would one day raise the dead. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, that God would one day create a whole new world and he would raise the dead and we would be uh, enjoying an eternity with God. And the Pharisees also represented the vast majority of the common folk, the everyday worker. The vast majority of the poor would, find, would align themselves to the Pharisaical party. The Pharisees were also very conservative in their interpretation of Scripture. They saw all the books of the old, what we would call the Old Testament as authoritative scripture. They read the prophets, the wisdom books. They read, obviously, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They, um, they, they read it all. They saw it all as, as valid. And they wanted Israel to be liberated from Rome, but so that they could institute the right following, the right teaching and the right following of God's holy law expressed to us through the scriptures. But when it came to actual power, they had a lot of bark and very little bite. Yes, some of them were a part of the Sanhedrin. Some of them were a part of the big council. But most of them didn't have real, true, powerful authority. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, they believed that in the end, you just died. You were just... Well, you were just worm food. That was it. In the end, it was just, you're a ball of meat, and then when you die, you just turn into dust. You go into the ground. They didn't believe that God would resurrect the dead, that he would reign in his, in his new world, that when you died, that was it. There was nothing to look forward to after that. No age to come, no nothing. So naturally, they didn't read the whole Bible, right? Or even the whole Old Testament. They read the first five books of the Bible. They saw that as authoritative. The rest was not. And they also were made up not of the poor, but of the aristocracy, of the richer class, the ruling class of the Jews. And so they really wanted also liberation from Rome, but for different reasons. They wanted to establish a political entity of Israel inside the land. Theirs was more political than religious, like, unlike the Pharisees. So the biggest leaders in Jerusalem, the ones that had the real teeth and the real power, were of the Sadducees. Most of the high priests and things like that all came from that class. They had the actual power in the land. Now, there was so much disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in first century Jerusalem, or in Judaism, that they didn't get along at all. They didn't see eye to eye on virtually anything. They saw the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, differently 
They saw the resurrection or life to come differently. One didn't believe in it at all. They had different political aspirations. Same goal, getting rid of the Romans, but for different reasons. They were at odds over virtually everything, which is why our ears should perk up as we're reading this story, because now they see all of a sudden magically eye to eye over this miracle worker in Galilee. They've heard whisperings of what he's done, and here they're joining forces to come after this one, and eventually they will conspire to put him to death. They'll conspire with the Romans, in fact. Now, if in our world, Republicans and Democrats are just people of the ruling class, all join forces to attack someone, we might be a little suspicious. We might think, Either this person is reprehensible and really bad, so bad that our perverted society could actually agree on something moral for a change. Or, this person's actually pretty good, and he's a threat to their power, or she's a threat to their power. This person's a threat to their power. The point is that if they're so at odds with one another, why are they coming together? Why are they conspiring? Our ears are perking up. Now, most likely this group is coming from Jerusalem. Now, as I said, Sadducee and Pharisee were more like political ideologies so that you could belong to one without being necessarily a professional. You could see yourself or align with the Pharisaical party or the Sadduceeical party. But it seems that these religious leaders were appointed once more to come from Jerusalem to Galilee to check this guy out and see what he's doing. And so they ask him for a sign from heaven. Now, hopefully, that causes you to think to yourself, what has the last eight chapters been? I mean, since chapter eight, we have, you could go all the way back there and see Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, walking on water, calming the storm. Uh, You can see him uh, uh, healing the lame, healing the blind. He opened the eyes of a blind man, which is a work only the Messiah would do. So he's been doing this since chapter 8. You move on from chapter 8, chapter 9, you get into the rest of it, and, and, and throughout he's walking on water. He's feeding the 5,000 uh, 5, families in the previous passage, uh, in the immediately previous passage, he, he fed 4,000 families. I mean, he's, he's done nothing but signs. And if you're thinking to yourself, what else do you want from it? Well, you'd be right. He has done nothing but signs. And I think you would be picking up on what Matthew is actually laying down by including this story here. How ironic is it that one passage prior, the Gentiles are receiving him to be the Jewish Messiah, and yet the ones who have the Old Testament memorized have failed to realize who he is. How ironic. That is, he steps into the regions of Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament cities that are known for their idolatry. A Canaanite woman comes up to him and declares him Lord and Son of David. How ironic that as he steps onto the shores of the Gentiles, just following that, they bring to him their sick, their blind, their lame, all of those with afflictions, and he heals them all. Yet when the most prestigious teachers in Judaism see him, they cannot properly discern who he is. 
brings to mind Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1.21 and following. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It raises the question, what kind of sign would suffice? What kind of sign could he give them that would suffice? They could easily speak to someone who was the beneficiary of Jesus' ministry. There were plenty of them. Plenty of passages where they're coming by the thousands, 4,000 people he fed, and yet it says they brought to him all their sick and he healed them all. There's plenty of people they could talk to. How many of you have ailments? Right? They all did. I got this knee, it's really weird. I got this rash. Healed them all. Every single one of them. All the way down to the, the blind and the lame. He healed them all. There's plenty they could talk to. Surely someone came to them and said, at least I saw the lame walk. I saw the blind healed. We know for a fact that there were people that came to them that at least reported that they saw it. How else would they know about Jesus? Except that somebody was reporting this. And probably there was somebody that came to him that said, I was blind and I did see. There's plenty of people they could have talked to. They could see for themselves that the reports are true. But if these signs that they've heard about don't suffice for them, what would? I'll more on this in a minute, but first the response. Verse 2. He answered them, When it's evening you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So Jesus is going to reject the Pharisees and the Sadducees' request for a sign. But first, he gives them a metaphor that's common in their day, and it's also common in ours. We say red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor's warning. Now, the point that he's making is really pretty simple. You're able to look around at the world around you, at the natural world, constantly. And you derive from the natural world patterns that allow you to predict and interpret what is going on and what is about to happen. You are very good at interpreting the natural world. However, when it comes to to looking at the world through spiritual eyes, you are completely and totally blind. What exactly is the problem that Jesus is nailing the Pharisees and Sadducees for? Well, the problem is that they actually know all too well what is happening. It's not that they lack evidence. It's what Jesus says. They're actually evil and adulterous. 
They're evil and adulterous. Their hearts are far removed from the Lord. They look on the outside as though they have it all together. They appear on the outside as though they have some sort of affection. They fast two times a week. They pray publicly and loudly. They lead the entire country and nation in spiritual devotion to the Lord. Yet he's saying they are evil and adulterous. Their hearts are far removed from the Lord. They don't actually have the affinity for God that they want to appear as though they have. That is the problem. It's not that they have a lack of evidence. The crowds, on the other hand, you will notice, the crowds don't seem to have this problem. The crowds come to Jesus and they aren't demanding of a sign for him from Him. Nor are they asking so that they, they might come to believe. Show us a sign, Lord, that we might believe. The crowds don't ask Him that. They actually believe that He can address both their physical and their spiritual needs. And they come to Him, as one commentator puts it, to avail themselves of Jesus' transforming power as humble petitioners in need. That's the crowd. They come as humble petitioners in need. The authorities, on the other hand, they come demanding tricks on command. They want to domesticate Jesus. They want to be the ones commanding the power of the kingdom of God rather than submitting to the God who has appointed to command His kingdom, Jesus. They're not needy and hungry. They merely want to ensnare and invalidate his ministry. Now, there are ample opportunities for them to witness Jesus' miracles, but they would have none of it. Give us a new sign. Well, Jesus sniffs this out and he rejects them. Instead, he tells them what he had actually told them before no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Now, what does the sign of Jonah mean? He actually tells them what this means, or he explains it to us, I should say, uh, back in chapter 12, 39 to 42. You can flip back there, just keep your thumb where we are, but turn back to Matthew 12, 39 to 42, just a few pages uh, back, where Jesus actually explains this in further detail. And what he's going to do is actually criticize the Pharisees and Sadducees. He gives us a little bit more detail there where we can understand it a little bit better of what his problem with them is. He says there in 12, 39 to 42, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus critiques the Pharisees. His problem with them is the same in our passage as it was back then. And I think there are at least three things that he says that's a critique in both of these passages. First, that they should have recognized what the Messiah was or who he was by his teaching. They should recognize that he's the Messiah by his teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gives 
insight and interpretation into the law of Moses. Moses condemned adultery. Jesus says, yes, it condemns adultery, but it also condemns lust of the heart. Moses condemns murder, but Jesus says he he also condemns in his law hatred of your brother. Now, are these things consistent with the teachings of Scripture? Absolutely they are. They reflect heaven's own will for our lives and how to actually walk in obedience to God. It's to live according to the teachings of Jesus. And if they would hear his teaching, they would see. After all, the queen of Sheba came from the south. A Gentile came from the south to hear Solomon's teaching. And yet something greater than Solomon is here among you. Does this sound familiar? The Gentiles are coming to hear Solomon. The Gentiles are also coming to hear Jesus. The Jews are rejecting. The second thing that I think is a critique here is that they have appointed themselves as judge. They've appointed themselves as judge. They've concluded that they are the ones to determine and validate whether or not someone is or is not the Messiah. It's like looking at the weather, right? They think they can look at the weather and determine what's going to happen, but yet when it comes to the signs of the times, they're incapable of actually judging. Because if they were the judge, then we would at least expect, if they were actual judges, that they would be able to look around at what Jesus is doing and accurately determine that he is the Messiah. They seem incapable of doing that. You can interpret the weather, but you're no judge of whether I am the Messiah or not. The third reason is kind of like that, but it's the source of their arrogance. They think they speak for heaven. They think they speak for heaven. They think that they can control the weather. It's not just about interpreting it, it's control of it all. Now to speak for heaven is to express God's will in a given situation. They are convinced that God has appointed them to this office of speaking on behalf of heaven. Therefore, if anyone wants to be seen as definitively the Messiah, he must operate under the auspices of the so-called Holy Council in Jerusalem. It's our authority. We're the ones that speak for heaven. He needs authorization and approval from us because after all, it's their authority that speaks for heaven. The problem with this, as Jonathan Lehman points out, is this. This is a quote from him. He says, like today's anti-religion skeptic, the super-religious Pharisees and Sadducees assumed they spoke for heaven, and so they maligned all challengers. They sought to expose Jesus as a fraud by asking him for a sign from heaven when they really believed that he was in league with the devil. The chief priests and elders likewise challenged Jesus' authority. Behind such challenges again, was the assumption that they were God's specially covenanted representatives. We, ought, we have Abraham as our father. The irony is, of course, that Jesus is actually the one who speaks for the kingdom of heaven. Amen. That Jesus is the one that actually speaks for heaven. He's God's representative. 
as we've been introduced in 4 to 7. We know he's the point person for the kingdom of God. We saw it validated for us in 8 to 10. We saw that he's the point person for the kingdom of God. That he's the one that will establish the kingdom on earth perfectly and finally. Instead, Jesus tells them that the only sign that will be given to them in is his own resurrection from the dead. And this will be enough to condemn them. That's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the well, or of the fish, for three days and three nights, so Jesus will be in the heart of the earth, will raise from the dead, which you know for the Sadducees was a little bit of a gut check. But we'll see the sign, we'll see the time to come. Will that sign of Jonah be enough for them? No, actually, at the end of this gospel, the Roman guards will come to the religious leaders and the scribes and the, and the leaders, and the, and, the, and the Roman guard will say, his body's gone. And will the religious leaders go, he must have really raised from the dead. Nope. They'll pay him to keep it quiet and explain it away as merely that his disciples came and stole the body. Jonah was a prophet, highly revered by the Jews. In spite of his initial disobedience, he was revered because his mission was so difficult at what God was commanding him to do. However, Matthew and Jesus both are telling us that Jesus is the new and better Jonah. Jonah was initially unwilling to go to his enemies. Nineveh was his enemy. He was initially unwilling to go to his enemies, but Jesus went willingly to God's enemies. Jonah was a disgruntled prophet, but Jesus was meek. Jonah complained about the withered plant as he watched, expecting the city of Nineveh to be consumed by God. But Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, the one to be consumed... And yet he opened not his mouth. Jonah preached a bare-bones message of condemnation to Nineveh with seemingly no hope of salvation, yet 30 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. But Jesus preached repentance and faith, bringing forth eternal life. Yet similarly, both went into the belly and emerged so that many could be saved. To the skeptic, the question remains, what more evidence do you need? What evidence are you looking for? What more evidence should there be than the evidence of the resurrection? What more do you need? I would challenge you to investigate the resurrection. Look into the resurrection from the dead. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection. This didn't happen in some dark corner of the world, yet none of the 500 rose up in refutation of the resurrection, and most of them died horrific deaths at the hands of men because of what they proclaimed about the resurrection. If this is a historic event, and if it's not enough 
for your unbelieving heart, then I would dare say nothing would be. A YouTube video of Jesus walking on water, you would explain away as digitally tampered with. Watching the feeding of the 5,000 live, you would say, it's an impressive magic trick. Jesus is better than David Copperfield. Son of God, he's not. Seeing a man with a withered hand restored, you would say he was a plant in the crowd, obviously. David Copperfield strikes again. I know this because many people saw these works and still did not believe and explained them away similarly. If you will not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you will not believe anything except your own power to save yourself. And the irony is that belief will actually send you to hell. It is the height of arrogance for a man who requires sleep every night to think that he can save himself. You realize we operate basically on batteries? That's basically what we run on. Our bed is our charging station. We just lay on it, close our eyes, and recharge. If we don't, we're dead. One bout with the flu. And our world is torn asunder. God, come back quickly. I'm not going to survive. Yet somehow we think, if I die, and I really do stand before Jesus, you know what I'm going to say? Yes, I do know what you're going to say. You're going to tell him that he's Lord to the glory of the Father. Instead, believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If you don't believe it, Investigate it. Doubt your doubts. Not only in the scriptures, tons of other books have been written about the resurrection. Look at them. Lee Strobel has written the case for just about everything. Pick one up and read it. It'll point you in the right direction at the very least. But you see, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Your investigating of the resurrection is not to condemn you. It's to save you. Don't you see? It's to save you. And the promise is that if you live in obedience and repentance and faith, that you too will be raised from the dead at Jesus' second coming. Otherwise, you will die and go to hell for all eternity, to the place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It really is that simple. It is not too good to be true. It is too good not to be true. This is not a timeshare that I'm offering. But brothers and sisters, we might be tempted to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
And we might be tempted to think of them as reprobate unbelievers. But are we not guilty of the same sins? Let me ask you a question. Are you satisfied with the resurrection of Christ? Or do you demand more proof of God's love for you? Our seasons of doubt often coincide with seasons of suffering in our life. As suffering increases, doubt often increases. We question God's love for us because, well, the times we're in are so difficult. Now, this isn't meant to trivialize those seasons of difficulty, but merely to prove how fickle our own hearts are in conviction that Jesus is true. And we might ask, God, why, Lord, why are you sending me through this? Is it because you hate me? Is it because you really don't love me? Is it because I've done something wrong? Perhaps this is payback for this or that or whatever it is that I've done. Is it, is it because I simply don't have enough faith to be made well? Is that why you're doing this to me? Perhaps in some low moments you might ask the Lord to remind you again that He loves you. To which His response is to point to the evidence of the resurrection through His Word. Have you stopped to consider the suffering of Jesus? How does your suffering compare to the perfectly holy and righteous Son of God who bore the full and unmitigated wrath of God on your behalf and on my behalf? The wrath you deserved and the wrath I deserved. How does your suffering compare to that? Then if He did not spare His own Son, if He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Paul goes on in Romans 8, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, what about persecution, what about famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, what further evidence of God's overwhelming love for you do you need than the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? Is there possibly another reason for your suffering if indeed you are suffering? 
Is it not possible that the Lord is refining you as a smith refines gold? Consider Joseph, not Jesus' stepfather in the Old Testament. Consider Joseph. The Lord summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. The Lord summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Do you think that caused some of his people to suffer? The Lord sent Joseph ahead of them who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what the Lord had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Don't take my word for it. That's an exact quote from Psalm 105, 16 to 19. The psalmist tells us that's what the Lord was doing with Joseph. With him being sold into slavery, with him being put in fetters, with him being having a collar of iron fastened around his neck, the Lord was testing him until what he said came to pass. And by his testing, he saved an entire nation. Of course, you don't know all that the Lord is doing in your life. If you did, you would be God. Of course you don't know. But if you sit in judgment over His decisions in your life, as if you are the judge, are you any better than the Pharisees and Sadducees in this passage who sit in derision over Christ as if they are the judge of Him? It is truly a sign of the times that so many sit in derision at the very notion that God could possibly be loving and yet suffering exist. Church, there is so much joy awaiting you when you resign yourself to His plan for your life. And you entrust that no matter how rough the journey that a loving God sits above, below, behind, in front, and throughout it all, conforming you into the image of His Son, whom you will one day see because He raised from the dead and rejoice at His reappearing. Only trust that His resurrection is enough confirmation for you of that day. And so live your life as if it is actually eternal. You understand that? Your life is eternal because Jesus raised from the dead. It does not stop at death. Eating, drinking, and being married for tomorrow we die is rendered null and void by virtue of the resurrection. Live your life as if it's actually eternal because by virtue of the resurrection it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your work with the word of your scripture. Sow it down deep in our hearts that we may hear it and believe. Testify to us again and again and again that your word is true that we can trust it. But there may be things we don't know. There may be things we don't understand. There may be lots of confusion that we have. 
and continue to reassure us that it's true. That the stories are true. And that what they mean for us is, is that we have eternal souls and one day eternal bodies as well. Testify to us again these truths that we may be totally different. That we may believe that we may boldly preach to others. When we preach to ourselves in those seasons of doubt, that though they're hard, though suffering lasts for the night, joy comes in the morning. Sow it down deep in our hearts that we may believe it and keep the enemy away, lest that seed fall and be forgotten. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange. Suffered for my part. 
this morning. If your desire is to follow Christ, I would love to speak with you about that. I'll be available in this room, um, so please hang around. Feel free to, to come grab me. Um, Jeremy is also in here. He's on staff. He would be happy to. Any of these members of the congregation should be able to answer how to follow Jesus as well, since they do. Um, if you would like to join our church in membership, please come find me. I'd love to talk with you about those things as well. Let me pray for us as we go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity to come together as a body and worship your name, sing praises to it, revere you and honor you as holy, but also to sing praises to your name for you have redeemed us. And I pray that in that attitude of fear and reverence over your holy name and appreciation over the fact that you have redeemed us, that we would go out in boldness conquer the world with the gospel, the message of hope, that truly you have sent your son to die for us, to bear our sins, and three days later rise from the dead. May we proclaim that message loud and sure, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.